This is a podcast from the Business Times. Welcome to Wealth with BT, hosted by Genevieve Kwa. In this episode, find out how you can position your portfolio, what you should be investing in, and the investment prospects for 2024. This episode is brought to you by UBS Wealth Management. Hi there everyone, warmest greetings for the new year. I'm Genevieve Kwa, Wealth Editor of the Business Times and host of this podcast, Wealth with BT. In this first episode for 2024, we have a guest with us, Kelvin Tay, Chief Investment Officer of UBS Wealth Management. Welcome to the show, Kelvin. Thanks for having me, Genevieve. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Kelvin is here to talk to us about the investment prospects for 2024. What should you be investing in and what risks should you watch out for? Our discussion will be pretty wide-ranging, starting from the outlook for interest rates and the impact on stocks and bonds, and then on to the outlook for Singapore and China. And of course, the big question, is it time to exit fixed deposits and invest in what exactly? So Kelvin, let's start with interest rates. In the Fed's last meeting for 2023, the Fed funds rate was unchanged. And officials seem to indicate the expectation for three rate cuts of 25 basis points each this year. But the futures market is expecting much more than that, which explains why markets rallied very strongly in December. What's your view on the rate trajectory for 2024 and the likely impact on stocks and bonds? Well, we expect the Federal Reserve to actually cut interest rates by about up to um, 75 basis points. They're likely to actually start doing that in May, June this year. And each time, they're likely to cut by about 25 basis points. Now, market expectations are for a lot more. And in fact, this morning, the market was actually looking at a cut of about 150 basis points um, for 2024. We do think that the market is a little bit too aggressive where the rate cut projections are concerned. In the first quarter, we might be in for some volatility where the fixed income market is concerned. Because we do think that on a short-term basis, there is a possibility that the 10-year US Treasury yields might actually jump to above 4% again before it actually settles at about 3.5% by the end of this year. And in fact, last night, the Treasuries actually jumped above 4% before coming back down to about 3.9%. What's your base case for the US economy? It's a soft landing, now pretty much a done deal. Yeah, we believe in the soft landing scenario, and that's largely because of a couple of factors here. Firstly, the unemployment rate in the US remains at 3.6%. Demand for labour is actually pretty strong. The household balance sheets, the corporate balance sheets remain in very, very good health as well. So there's no need for us to fear a deleveraging process if rates don't come off fast enough or the fact that the US consumer needs to actually cut back spending dramatically if the US economy slows down. We don't think that's going to happen. Yes, there will be a slowdown in consumption because the Americans are no longer spending on their excess savings. They're likely to rely a lot more on their disposable income on a monthly basis. And as a result of that, yes, consumption will be less than last year, but certainly it is not a steep fall from uh, where it was last year. We do think that a soft lending scenario is probably more appropriate in that sense. So generally, you're pretty optimistic. Yeah. We do think that the Federal Reserve has actually got it more or less spot on with three rate cuts this year. You don't really want to cut too much, nor do you want to be standing there not doing anything as well. Because I think if you cut too much, you run the risk of reigniting inflation. And you certainly don't want that to actually happen. Not when inflation expectations are already pretty entrenched. If you cut too much, that might actually fuel expectations of a uh, further rally in the uh, financial markets. And that in turn basically means a further easing of financial conditions, which means that you're going to run the risk 
of inflation you know, coming down to the 2.5% target that you want for the end of this year. So the Federal Reserve has to be a little bit more careful with that. And on top of that, you have your unemployment rate at about 3.6%, which is very, very healthy. Building in mind that the uh, full employment rate level in the US is actually at 4%. So we're actually operating above capacity at this stage. So you don't really want to actually overcut. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about geopolitics now, which is likely to be a big factor in 2024. First off, you have the Taiwan elections, and that's far from the only one. This recording, by the way, is being done in the first week of January, and Taiwan's presidential election is set for January 13. Then there's the U.S. presidential election in November. Which elections are set to wield the biggest impact on Asia and Singapore? Before we go into the details of that, geopolitics, in our view, don't really drive and impact markets over the longer-term basis. I think where this year is concerned, there are many, many elections. We have Taiwan, we have Indonesia, we have India, we have Korea parliamentary elections. We might actually have elections in Russia as well. And of course, we have the US presidential elections at the end of the year. And some people are speculating that perhaps we might get elections in Singapore as well because Correct. elections yes. are due in 2025. Right. Now, the one that will probably have the most impact is the US presidential elections. Because if you consider history, the US presidential elections this year will see US politics at its most polarised. You have a very wide gap between the Democrats and the Republicans. And that's certainly not healthy. Now, on top of that, last year in 2023, despite the fact that US unemployment rates was at 3.6%, that the US financial markets had a really good run, even though that came in the later part of the year. And despite the fact that the US economy was actually pretty robust and resilient, President Biden's approval ratings was very, very low. So what do you need to get the incumbent back in power after the elections at the end of this year? Now, that's a big question mark. And one third of the electorate in the US actually thinks that the 2020 elections were rigged. So that basically means that you're dealing with an electorate that's not really rooted in reality, that has very high expectations, and those expectations are likely to be very, very difficult to fulfill, especially in a year where the economy is likely to slow down. That in turn has other implications because that means the incumbent will be very unlikely to reduce his fiscal spending. Because if you reduce that, the economy is going to slow down further. So he will have to actually increase or actually maintain the level of fiscal spending this year. And of course, we all know that it was because of the fiscal spending last year that actually propped up the US economy. But why I say the US elections have the potential to impact is because there are certain parallels that you can actually draw. If the Republicans come back into power, they will likely shift the burden of spending where the Russia-Ukraine war is concerned back to the Europeans. And that means that the European Union will probably have to increase their fiscal expenditure via the issuance of more bonds, more sovereign debt. If that's the case, then the euro-dollar call will likely have to be adjusted. Because right now, we have a 112 euro-dollar call. If the Republicans win, the euro could potentially be a lot weaker. Yes. Now let's talk about Singapore. GDP growth in the fourth quarter came in strongly. What outlook do you have for the economy and asset growth? And what exposures do you like or dislike for 2024? We're lucky in Singapore because the economy is actually quite well diversified. Mm -hmm. We have exports, we have tourism, we have the financial sector, we have the oil and gas and pharmaceuticals as well. So last year, exports was disappointing, right? Your non-oil domestic exports contracted for 13 months in a row. But that's not a Singapore-centric issue. It's an issue globally. 
Countries like China, Korea, Japan, Thailand, Malaysia also had fairly dismal exports, largely because a lot of the consumers globally shifted the spending from durables to services. For example, instead of buying an iPad or a computer, you choose to actually go on holiday. So that pattern is likely to be repeated this year as well, because this year, if you look at the IATA numbers, they are actually projecting global travel to search beyond the pre-pandemic 2019 levels. So you don't expect a pickup where your durable goods spending is concerned. If that's the case, where exports in Singapore is concerned, our export recovery is likely to be very, very muted. There might be a recovery. We probably saw the worst last year, but the recovery is likely to be quite weak, anemic at best. The tourism sector, I think, has more or less peaked out unless outbound tourism from China recovers very, very strongly, which is again unlikely unless the government in China goes on a bazooka spending basis, increases fiscal stimulus in a big way and helps the economy to actually grow beyond the 5% that they're actually projecting for this year. So, all in, the Singapore economy is probably going to be in for a pretty rough ride. Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong has said this before. We are very dependent on the external conditions for how the economy is likely to perform this year. The good news is that rates are coming off and the SORA rates in Singapore are quite highly correlated with the US rates. So if the Federal Reserve starts cutting in May and June and if they cut by 75 basis points, interest rates in Singapore will probably see further downside from here. And that could be a relief for homeowners, for business owners where their cost of financing is concerned. What can we then position where Singapore is concerned? Well, the banks have done well last year because rates were going up. So the net interest margin expansion was there. And I think that's more or less peaked out. If rates starts coming off, then obviously the banks will actually see that net interest margin starting to contract. So they'll need to depend more on fee income, on the wealth management services to help to increase their loans growth, their margins, etc., etc. They also need to actually be careful with their NPLs, right? Because the economy is probably going to slow down and not be sterling where growth is concerned. So I would probably be quite neutral with regard to exposure to the banks. Now, the REITs are starting to look interesting because the Singapore government bond yields have actually dropped quite nicely. Last year, when the T-bills went up to 4%, you saw a massive sell-off in the REITs because if I buy a Singapore government T-bill yielding me 4%, why should I be investing in a REIT, right? Because the risk return is just not quite there. So with the REITs coming off, that in turn could actually spark some interest in the REITs. But again, we have to be careful here because investing in the REITs today it's very dependent on the asset quality. If the asset quality is poor, no matter how interesting or how high the dividend is, it is not likely to be enough to compensate for the kind of risk that you're taking. Still to come, you may be thinking about reinvesting your cash once your fixed deposits mature. But is this a good time to get into stocks or bonds? The US stock market ran up significantly in 2023. The S&P 500 gained 26% and NASDAQ 46%. How can investors participate and still keep risks under control? And now, back to Wealth with BT, brought to you by UBS Wealth Management. Kelvin, we were discussing a few things. I'll just quickly recap. The outlook for interest rates, geopolitical developments with the biggest impacts on Asia, and the outlook for Singapore. Now let's turn to China, which can't be ignored in Asia. China has weathered a tough year. What signposts might you look for to signal a turnaround? Or let me put it another way, what do you see as a likely catalyst for a growth uptick and asset revaluation? China is pretty complex and yet simple to analyse. When I look at China, there are two things that I look out for. Firstly, you cannot analyse China as a country on its own. It's far too diversified, it's far too big, it's far too complex. How I look at China is how I look at the EU. 
you have the first tier countries in the EU like Germany, Luxembourg, Belgium, Holland. And then you have the European peripheral countries like, for example, Spain, Portugal, Greece. So when you have one policy for the whole country, you can't implement it effectively. So how you look at China, you have the tier one cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Then you have the tier three, tier four cities like Hunan, Henan, Shanxi province, etc., etc. And that adds to the complexities. Because if China comes up with one policy trying to revive the property market, for example, you might spark another bubble in the tier one cities. But at the same time, you could perhaps actually engineer a recovery in the tier three, tier four cities. So how do you then have a policy that fits all? The answer is you can't. You have to give more autonomy and more flexibility to the provinces. And this is where the complexity is because not every province is made equal in terms of the level of economic development, in terms of the majority of the economy, in terms of the kind of talent that they have where the provincial government is concerned. So we need to account for all that. And it's not easy because whenever we look at China, we look at, oh, 5% growth, that's bad. Oh, 6% growth, that's strong. I think that's an oversimplification. The second point is there are basically four pieces that you need to look at. The infrastructure, the property market, the exports, and there's consumption. Exports have been poor, but again, it's not a China-centric issue. It's basically an issue globally, a shift or rotation in spending from durable goods to services. And I don't think there's going to be a dramatic improvement over the next three months. Then it comes to the unemployment rate in China. That's actually affecting consumption in China. So consumption as a second pie is also very slow because unemployment rates in China right now are actually pretty high. Youth unemployment is at 22%. Urban unemployment is at 5.5%. Now, youth unemployment is not going to drop because every year, China produces anywhere between 8 to 10 million graduates. In 2021-2022, the SMEs were wiped out by the very harsh lockdowns that the Chinese government implemented. It will take time for them to recover and to rebuild, restructure, and be back online. So consumption is pretty moribund right now. Now, the Chinese are consuming, don't get me wrong, but they're consuming on the small ticket items. You know, they are eating hot pot, they are watching movies, they are traveling within a three-hour range. All that has an impact on consumption. The bigger ticket items, they're not spending on, usually associated with property. If you buy a new house, you have to spend. You're probably going to get a new TV, a new fridge, a new washing machine. If you have a property market like what is happening in China right now, where it's very moribund, very flat, that's also going to have an impact on consumption. And that's what's actually dragging the entire Chinese economy down. Now, what are the kind of signposts that I look for to see whether there's a recovery in China? It is basically the property market. If there is a turnaround in the property market, the whole economy will turn around. Sentiment improves, spending will come through. How do I then decide whether there is a turnaround in the property market? It is the sales of the private developers. The weekly sales numbers remain weak. December was a dismal month where sales were concerned, but that could also be weather-related because China actually had a very bad winter. Beijing was at its coldest for the last 44 years. We really need the sales volumes and the sales numbers of private developers to improve before we can actually say for certain that, yes, property market is actually recovering in China. The SOE developers are seeing pretty strong sales numbers because if you need to buy a place, you need to buy a place. But who do I buy from? I buy from an SOE because I know that these guys are backed by the government. Why would I buy from a private developer where they could face issues with refinancing down the road and then I'm not going to get delivered by the unit that I paid for? All that needs to be dealt with before we can actually move on. Mm. Broadly, what risks might you be concerned about that you feel are not adequately priced in markets? I mean, earlier you mentioned things like global warming and we do have the issue of higher carbon taxes coming up. Yeah. 
we are a bit too complacent on inflation. The markets have been too aggressive in thinking that inflation is going to trend down nicely from the current levels. The Fed's target is 2%. We think it's going to drop to 2.5% by the end of the year. But the journey from where it is right now to 2.5% to eventually 2% is not going to be so smooth. It might be a bit rocky. Why do we think that inflation might be higher than before? Deglobalization, de-risking, decoupling. When companies expand their production in countries for risk considerations and not because of cost considerations, your cost will always be higher. Let's face it, we can't manufacture anything in the world today cheaper than the Chinese can. So if I choose to manufacture in another country because I'm worried about the geopolitics there, then I'm actually not taking into consideration the cost. I'm taking the risk into more consideration. That means my cost levels will be higher. And who do you think is going to actually have to absorb the higher cost? It is the consumer. I'm going to pass the cost down to the consumer. That means that the consumer will have to pay a higher cost. Now, on top of that, we have a structural deficit of workers today in the world because of the aging demographics. In the West, the demographics are worsening. The baby boomers are retiring. In the East, not that bad. But even then, in countries like Korea, Singapore as well, Thailand. So how do we account for that? We have an AI revolution going on. But again, it is not likely to be soon enough for us to be able to replace those uh, retiring workers. Then, of course, we have global warming. Your electricity costs will go up because utility companies have to buy carbon credits in order to produce energy for you to use. So if the markets are pricing in very aggressive rate cuts by the Federal Reserve and the inflation levels don't drop and the Federal Reserve has to be a lot more hawkish, that has the potential to derail the markets. Finally, Kelvin. Please distill for us your most important asset allocation calls for 2024. Is it risk on or risk off? And of course, for those still sitting in fixed deposits, how should they make the transition towards more risk, if at all? What the last years have actually taught us is that you really cannot time the markets. Last year was a classic case. First quarter of the year was quite bad, right? Because we had the US regional banking crisis in March and that dragged the markets down. Then we had the introduction of ChatGBT and that actually moved the markets back up because, you know, the S&P dominated by the tech industry soared. Then from July to October, we had another very bad three months because bond yields in the US on a 10-year basis hit 5% and equity markets came off. And then in the last two months of the year, we had a tremendous rally. So if you were sitting there trying to time all these little things, buy into all these or sell into all these gyrations in the market, you would have been punished. Again, the advice is do not try to time the markets. Last year, 2023 was a great year for equity markets. But when we look at the two-year average, 2022 and 2023, your returns were actually very, very meager. It's basically 2 to 3% where your S&P 500 is concerned. So again, you cannot time the markets. Whenever we have extreme market volatility, first thing to do is don't panic and suddenly decide to sell everything. That is the biggest mistake you can actually make. Second thing you need to do is you need to restructure, rebalance. In a very volatile market, some very good stocks with good balance sheets, great cash flow might be sold down dramatically. Those are opportunities for you to get into the stock itself if you don't already have enough of the stock or you don't have the stock at all. Now, this year, we believe it will be a pretty good year for equities and bonds. It will not be fantastic, but it will be a good year. Do have bonds and equities in your portfolio. Where equity markets are concerned, if your Federal Reserve, your central banks is actually cutting rates, then you need to be exposed to the cyclical stocks. So we believe that investors should actually broaden their holdings of stocks and not be focused on any one particular sector. Your Magnificent Seven, your Apple, Amazon, etc. have done extremely well last year. Remember that there's another 493 stocks in the S&P 500 for you to actually focus on. Likewise, there are more stocks than just the three banks in Singapore. So broaden your exposure. Where the bonds market is concerned, 
be on the lookout for quality bonds. The sovereigns, the uh, investment grade, and where your duration is concerned, we believe you should actually stretch it out to 10. But the sweet spot is actually in the five year, where it gives you a very good yield, and at the same time, it's not too long and not too short. Too short because you have reinvestment risk. Don't be in cash. The 12 months fixed deposit might be very attractive, but what happens after 12 months? Your rates would have come off dramatically, your bond markets would have gone up, your equity markets would have gone up, then what do you do? Cash serves its purpose, but it does not serve an investment purpose in my view. Thanks for being with us, Kelvin. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Kelvin Tay of UBS Wealth Management. Your decisions on your portfolio must, of course, take into account your risk appetite, cash flow needs, the size of your capital, and how much return you need to generate to meet your goals. I hope this episode helps you to size up markets and risks more clearly. Until the next episode, I wish you the best for 2024. This episode of Wealth with BT was brought to you by UBS Wealth Management. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is meant to provide general information only. SPH Media accepts no liability for loss arising from any reliance on the podcast or use of third parties' products and services. Please consult professional advisors for independent advice.